Well, turn back again in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And let me read again verses 1 to 5, which is going to be the focus of, of our attention. Psalm 32 and verses 1 to 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now the wonder of God's forgiveness is that anybody can be forgiven. The gospel is addressed to anybody in this world. Whosoever will may come and be forgiven. But I wonder if I asked you this question, how you would answer it. The question is, do you think you can forgive a child killer? Can you forgive someone who deliberately kills a child, murders a child? Apparently, even hardened criminals have trouble with that question, have trouble with forgiving someone who's killed a child. And they tell us that in prisons, uh, prisons are dangerous places for people who kill children. And very often those child killers have to be kept in isolation because it's not infrequent that those killers of children are themselves killed. And they become victims of the strange justice system that prevails inside prison walls. So would you be able to forgive a, a killer of children? The Bible makes it clear that God can, and God does. In fact, if you read in Second Kings, you discover the depravity of Manasseh. And you'll see that Manasseh even sank to this point, where it says, he burned his son as an offering, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. So Manasseh was so wicked that he offered his child up in sacrifice to God's. He was so wicked that God had Manasseh bound, tied by hooks and led as a captive into Babylon. One writer describes Manasseh in this way. He was a wicked, vile, godless, child-sacrificing man. Can such a man be forgiven? Well, you read in 2 Chronicles 33 and discover that Manasseh repented. And Manasseh turned to God. And wonder of wonders, God forgave him. And so what we sing about sometimes is actually quite true. And the Bible is adamant 
that this is true. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Fanny Crosby's right. She's thinking biblically. And our response is, well, to God be the glory, because that means there's hope for us. So the wonder of God's forgiveness is that anybody can be forgiven. As long as they, as we were reminded earlier, turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus, there's forgiveness. And then also the wonder of God's forgiveness is that, is that you can be forgiven. Many years ago, Charles Wesley was living in the home of a man named John Bray. And he happened to be talking to a woman, did Charles. And Wesley asked her whether she was ready to die. And the woman responded with these words. She said, I would be willing to die at this moment, for I know that my sins are blotted out. He has saved me by his death. So yes, I'm ready to die at any moment because my sins are forgiven. Now, sadly, at that point, Wesley himself was not forgiven. He had not yet turned. But on May 21st, 1738, John Bray, his host, read to him Psalm 32. And when especially this first section was read, the word of God went like an arrow to his heart. And Wesley said later, The Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. I now found myself at peace with God. He had been forgiven. And all his sins had been washed away, and he was saved. Well, what do you have here? Well, you have a famous hymn writer. Everybody knows, well, a lot of people know, Charles Wesley. He's forgiven. You have a nameless woman, don't know her name, but she's forgiven, she'll go to heaven. And then there's you. Many of us here today are saved. We've been forgiven. And if you're not a Christian, you may be forgiven as well. As surely as that woman was saved, and as surely as Charles Wesley was saved, you can be saved as well. You can be forgiven. So that's the wonder of this, this passage and this reality of the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5, talks about the fact that David, having sinned so greatly, he was forgiven. Psalm 32 is one of the penitential psalms. There are a number of others, Psalm 6, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, and so on. But it's a penitential psalm. The word penitential is a word little used and probably even less understood these days. But Christians should know it. We should understand penitence and understand the idea of a penitential psalm because we are, by definition, those who mourn. Now, that's not everything that can be said of us, We also know joy, but we're also those who mourn. We understand the whole idea of penitence. We are those who are sorry for our sins. That's what penitential means. It means sorry for your sins. It's not that you don't care. That's how you were before. But now you're sorry for your sins. You wish you'd never done them. And you're so thankful that God will forgive them. Well, we're going to think about this psalm here. It's a psalm of penitence, but it's also a psalm of rejoicing 
Because David stands before us today as a man who not only has sinned grievously, but who has been forgiven gloriously. That's what we're going to think about. And the first thing we'll think about is the problem of sin. The problem of sin. And I want to tell you that no one will ever be happy in their sin. And we all want to be happy. Uh, There's something wrong with you if you don't want to be happy. We all want to be happy, and the fact is, the Bible makes it very clear, no one will ever be happy in sin. You can read, um, when you read uh, biographies, you can read about some very interesting people. Augustine is one of the most interesting people you could ever read about. And Augustine, early in his life, just gave himself wholly and completely to enjoying all the sins you could possibly find in the world. He says this. He says, As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with a desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures. Surfeit means to enjoy something to an almost disgusting degree. If you see someone sitting at the table and they're just eating and eating and eating like a glutton, that's enjoying a surfeit of uh, the culinary pleasures that are available. He says, I just couldn't get enough of sin. That's all I wanted, and I wanted as much as possible. He says, my family made no effort to save me from my fall by marriage. Their only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech, that has become really good at rhetoric, and how to persuade others about my words. He said, I went to the town of Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. My real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. I was willing to steal, and steal I did, although I was not compelled by any lack. He stole because he wanted to, not because he needed something, but because he enjoyed sin. But he says, it didn't make me happy. And that's the thing about sin. That's what non-Christians need to understand. Sin will never make you happy. Christians need to understand this as well. Notice what the psalm says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word blessed means real, profound, and lasting happiness. And what I'm saying to you is that that is where happiness is to be found. It's to be found in forgiveness of sin, not in indulgence in sin. Happiness is to be found when you're forgiven by God of all your sins, not when you run and enjoy all the sins you possibly can. Many of you have non-Christian friends, and those friends will tell you that that's where happiness is to be found, by doing whatever you want to do and indulging in whatever sin you want to indulge in. And the Bible says, no, that's a lie from the devil. Happiness, true happiness, is to be found when you're forgiven of your sins by God. Why is this? Well, you'll never be happy in sin because you've been made for God. God didn't make you to be a sinner. God didn't make you so that you might just enjoy sin your whole life. No, God made you for himself. 
He made you to know him. He made you to be in a relationship with him. And the problem with sin is that sin drags you away from God. Sin turns you in another direction. God calls you and sin turns you away like that and pulls you from the Lord. In fact, Augustine says that's exactly what sin did in his life. The sin in his heart did that. He says, I was held back by mere trifles. They plucked at my garment and whispered, are you going to dismiss us? He says, my sin whispered in my ear, don't go to God. Just stay here and enjoy us for a little longer. I was drawn away, he says. I was held back by mere trifles, by sin and all of its pleasures. And it drew me away from God and called me away from the Lord. And so you see, sin will will turn you in any direction other than God. But Augustine discovered, by the grace of God, he discovered that, that he was made for God. And in fact, he said this, you made us for yourself. He's talking to God. And he says, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. So what I'm saying to you, if you're not a Christian, whether you're here this morning, whether you're listening and watching, If you're not a Christian, you know yourself to be a a non-Christian. You need to know this, that there is no happiness in sin. Ultimately, no happiness at all in sin. Now, people think that's what's going to make them happy. You've heard this poem, a man named Henley, William Henley. He, He describes his outlook on life in this way. He says, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm just going to do exactly what I want. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to look at what I want. I'm going to say what I want. And I don't care what God says. I'm just going to indulge my sinful nature. And he seems to think, well, now that's what's going to give me pleasure. He says, I'm the master of my fate. The fact of the matter is that the Bible says, well, you live like that, and after death comes judgment. Not only is there not happiness in sin, but there's judgment because of sin. You'll not only not be happy, but you'll be tormented forever and ever. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. That's the problem of sin. You see, there's no happiness in sin. Twice in the book of Isaiah, it says there's no peace for the wicked. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. It's a lie to think that there's pleasure in sin. You're being deceived by a lie from the pit. No happiness in this. The second thing, as we think about the problem of sin, is this, that you will never be happy because you have been saved, because you're alive. Non-believers won't be happy because they've been made for God, as we all have. 
Christians won't be happy in sin because they've been made alive. You're a Christian. The reason you are never happy when you sin is because you've been made alive. You've been made alive to God and you've been made alive to righteousness. Now, you have a heart for righteousness. You have a heart that loves righteousness. You have a heart that is not happy in sin anymore. You have a heart that is only happy when you're following Christ. Because you're a Christian now and you've been made alive, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And sin then just doesn't satisfy. It won't make you happy. And that was David's experience. You look at verses 3 to 5. For when I kept silent... Now, what was that time period? Well, this was after he had committed those sins, you know, after he had lusted and committed adultery and then committed murder and began to cover it up. Well, he covered it up. He kept silent. And what happened when he kept silent? He wouldn't confess his sins. He just kept going on and on. Well, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon was dried up as by the heat of summer. I just withered inside. My spirit, my soul just withered up. I was like a dry branch just lying there because your hand was heavy upon me. You see, when believers indulge in unconfessed sin, they're miserable. You and I have experienced this ourselves. We don't We haven't perhaps committed the sins that David committed. But we commit sins as well. And what's the impact of those sins on us? Does it have no effect? On the contrary, it has an effect on us. The Lord will chastise us. The Lord will correct us. What kinds of sins do we commit? Maybe it's weak faith. If weak faith, you just don't even bother to strengthen your faith. Maybe it's a loose tongue. You You just say things you want. Say you, you, don't, you don't guard your lips. You don't set a watch over your tongue. Maybe it's a jealous eye. You're, you're always looking at, at what other people have and what other people are. You look with a certain amount of jealousy. Perhaps it's an angry word. You're just, you're just left spiritually. There's no... You're not willing to do anything... hunger there, and frankly, you're not doing much about it. Well, these are, these are the kinds of sins, and they're going to our souls. Page 13 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. If we don't deal with our sin, if we don't address our sin, if we don't confess our sin, And we're going to experience this kind of chastisement that David experienced. And you know, you need to think about the fact that perhaps, perhaps the discomfort that you feel, perhaps the unease that you feel, perhaps the distress that you've experienced, perhaps the the dryness of soul that you're experiencing is because the Lord is chastising you 
because of unconfessed sin. That's what David experienced. Perhaps that's your experience. There is, in fact, no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And David would testify to that as well. So, first thing. The first thing is that uh, problem of sin. The problem of sin. But there is a lesson to be learned here. And the lesson is this. Thank God that you have a heavenly father who will not let you wander away indefinitely. Now, you and I will have these experiences. We understand what David went through because we've done the same kind of thing. But thank God we have a heavenly father who doesn't just let us wander off. We do wander off. We're prone to wander and prone to leave the God we love. But if you read Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, what you'll find is that we have a heavenly father who loves us so much he will correct us. He loves us so much that he will chastise us. He loves us so much that he will go after us. When your children wander away from you, you run after them and you go and get them and you bring them back to the the path that they ought to be on and to the place of safety where they ought to be. That's what God does for us. He doesn't let us just wander off indefinitely. He will go after and he will call us back and he will bring us back. And sometimes he will use affliction and sometimes he will use hard times in our life. And he will bring these things in so that we might be corrected. You can't get away from your heavenly father. That's wonderful. And even if you turn your back on him, he's always there to bring you back. You can go outside today and wherever the sun will be, if you turn your back to the sun, you'll still feel on, the, on, the, on your neck, you'll still feel the warmth of the rays of the sun. That's like that with, with the Lord. You turn your back on him because you're in a pout. But the, the rays of the sun still hit you. And you'll still feel his love and his Grace in reaching out to you and calling you back and bringing you back. It's wonderful to have a father who, though we might want to let go of him sometimes, he will never let go of us. That was David's experience. Well, that brings us to the second thing, the confession of sin. There were three words for sin um, in, um, in the first section, and th- these three words are matched by three words for confession. Now, if you see in the first part, David, uh, David talks about transgression, and he talks about sin, and he talks about iniquity. And what these words tell us is that David was a rebel against God, transgression. His, he was a sinner. That is, his arrow was always deliberately falling short of the mark that God set. And then he talks about iniquity, and this is how twisted we are inside. So David says we're sinners by nature and practice. He says we are rebels against God. We deliberately disobey God, and we do it because we're so twisted inside. But look at verse 5 now. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So what does David do? Well, he responds to God reaching out to him. We read in 2 Samuel 12 that God sent Nathan to him. 
And there are times in your life and mine when we have drifted from God and God will send a Nathan. It may be a situation, maybe circumstance, it may be a word of scripture, maybe a message, but God sends a Nathan to us to bring us back. And God sent a literal Nathan to David. And Nathan comes and rebukes him and points out his sin to him. Now that is a story we're familiar with, but that is a painful experience. You imagine King David and a man comes to him and he says, you are the, this is what you've done. That's a painful experience. It's a humiliating experience. I'm sure you've had someone point out your sin. It is a humiliating experience. It's a kind of conversation that we dread. It's a conversation we never seek out. But it's a conversation that is a godsend. Because God sends these corrections along so that we might see our sin and repent of it and grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And we want to pray for humility to to receive those kinds of rebukes well. And we want to pray for grace so that we might change our ways and walk in a manner more pleasing to the Lord. Well, that's what happened with David. David acknowledged his sin and he confessed his sin. Lord willing, that would be us as well. Now, notice the words that David uses here. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I acknowledge it. This means to make known. And so people, probably many people knew about what had gone on, but David wouldn't acknowledge it. So now, finally, he came clean. He just, he just admitted it. And he acknowledges what he's done. And I want to tell you, that's a freeing experience. It's the kind of thing we don't want to do, but when you do it, it's freeing. Because these sins are dragging on you. They're dragging you spiritually. And when you acknowledge your sin, you see, just finally... Yes, yes, yes. It's a freeing experience. He acknowledges. And then he says, he didn't cover. I I stopped covering. He had been covering. Now no more. He stops covering. And we cover our sins as well. We cover our sins in a, well, a variety of ways. We cover our sins, well, by ignoring it. You know, here's my sin here. I just look over here. I just don't even look at it as if it's not there. We cover our sins by blaming other people. Well, I know I did that, but, you know, it was someone else's fault. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. So basically, their fault. And we're very good at that. We started at the fall, and we still continue it to this day. And we, we cover sin by giving it other names. Other names. You know, for instance, what kind of filth Adult entertainment is. What, what a ridiculous name. Adult entertainment. People would perhaps react differently if you said, here is the kind of thing you'd enjoy if you have a filthy mind. And put that up there and say, well, now this is where you can get that stuff. Here's the stuff that if you indulge in this the rest of your life, you'll go straight to hell. No, oh, let's call it Something less offensive. Let's call it adult entertainment. So we do that as well. 
we change the names of things. Countries do that as well. They call abortion a woman's right, and so on and so forth. David says, I, I stopped. I stopped covering my sin. And then he says, I confessed. I confessed. To confess is to agree with God. To confess is, is to say, yes, Lord, you're right. Well, David confessed. So the lesson is this. The question is now this. Have you confessed? If you're not a Christian, you need to confess your sin to God. You need to acknowledge to God that you're a sinner with no hope unless you come to Jesus Christ. Because as we heard, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody, no sinner gets to God except through him. So if you're not a Christian, you need to confess your sin today and turn to the Lord Jesus If you're a Christian, well, you need to confess quickly. Don't let the withering go on the way it did with David. There's unconfessed sin in your life. Deal with it quickly. David waited months. Don't do that. Confess seriously. This is something, these sins are things that hinder your relationship with God. This is not just us being, you know, we're just being picky about things. No, sin is offensive to God. So we have to think seriously about these things. And this hinders your relationship to God. Sin clouds your relationship to God. So think about it seriously and be done with it. Confess it. Think about it earnestly. Confess, excuse me, confess earnestly. Listen to, um, listen to, uh, John Owen, he says, say to your soul, this is now when you're you're thinking about your sin, this is how you ought to think about about your sin. He says, say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to love? to the Son for his blood, to the Spirit for his grace? Do I thus reward the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the Spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep my dust? How shall I hold up my head with any boldness before him? Do I so little of so little value that for this vile lust's sake I have scarce left him any room in my heart. You see, see what he's saying? He's saying, think seriously. Understand what serious thing sin is. And make your confession to the Lord. Confess diligently. Confess diligently. That is, confess and forsake. You confess your sin and you're done with it. You mustn't be like Augustine. Augustine said, is supposed to have said, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Make me pure, but let me just just a little while longer. The way Joseph did. The way he cloak in the grasp of his wife, because he doesn't have anything to do with that. Flee sin our confession to the Lord. The second thing, and now thirdly, and quickly, the forgiveness of sins. 
the forgiveness of sins. And I have to rush because I took too much time on the rest. Well, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible makes it very clear that that's a wonderful thing. Before we talk about that, let me ask you this. Do you need to forgive yourself? Do you need to forgive yourself? We hear that all the time. And um, people are always saying, and Christians often say, that, uh, well, I believe God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Well, I think there's a, a lot of confused thinking in all of that. And I can't get into it now, but I think it may be that what Christians mean by that, what non-Christians mean is quite different, but what Christians mean, I think, is they don't really believe that God has forgiven them. That's at the heart of their issue. When they say, I know God's forgiven me, but I, I haven't forgiven myself, I think that what's at the heart of that is the fact that they don't really believe that God's forgiven them. Because that, according to the Bible, is our main issue. That God forgive us. That's the big thing. Whether we've forgiven ourselves doesn't matter one whit. Has God forgiven us? That's the gigantic, the gigantic issue. And so I think what you might say to people who are struggling in that way is, you need to really believe that God has forgiven you. Well, let's think about this forgiveness. Think about the wonder of the forgiveness. And the wonder of God's forgiveness is that he has forgiven us. I acknowledge my sin to you, emphasis on the you, and then at the end of verse 5, and you forgave my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. The, The you is emphatic. That's the extraordinary thing David is saying. This is the real wonder. It's not so much that I sinned against people, although he did, but I've sinned against you. And now you have forgiven us and forgiven me. And that's the wonder of forgiveness, the completeness of forgiveness. Well, David uses three words for sin and three words about confession, and now he uses three words about forgiveness. And he says, that God has forgiven and God has covered and God does not impute. So God forgives our sins. That word means to, to carry it away. Remember like the, the scapegoat in Leviticus 16? The scapegoat, you confess, the high priest confesses the sins and off the scapegoat goes. Never to be seen again. That's what God has done with all your sin. He's carried it away. He has taken it away. He's forgiven you of all your sin. He's also covered that sin. He's covered that sin. And um, the word covered means to be, uh, think of the Egyptians when they're, they're caught up in the Red Sea and the waters cover them while the Lord covers our sins and he hides it from view, specifically from his view. So that if you're a Christian, what he sees when he looks at you is the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And then he doesn't impute. He doesn't impute our sins to us. This is a financial term. And what it means is that in, in, the, in the line on the book where it records your debts, that has been removed. Whatever debt you had and you had 
millions and millions of dollars worth of debt. That debt has been removed. And now, not only is the debt removed, but something positive has been put to your account. You're now not, in the sight of God, not sinful, but positively righteous. Because your sin has been imputed to Christ, and he's paid for that, and his righteousness has been imputed to you. So there's the completeness of our forgiveness. And what God has done is he's taken that and nailed it to the cross. Remember the hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So the wonder of God's forgiveness is that we, we sinned against him and he forgave. The completeness of forgiveness, he's forgiven us of all and every sin. Now, our response to this, as we think about the wonder of God's forgiveness, the forgiveness of all of our sins, this is how we want to live. You don't want to live with sin dragging you away and hindering your relationship to God. You want to live in the freedom and the joy of sins forgiven. David talks in Psalm 51 about having joy restored. And that's what happens. When we confess our sin, there is joy restored because the Lord has cleansed us and forgiven us of all unrighteousness. The New Living Translation in verse 5 says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. And there's an exclamation mark. All my guilt is gone, exclamation mark. Trying to capture something of the delight and the joy. That's how you want to live. You know, when there's unconfessed sin, there's a weight on you. And the freedom and joy of, of living when the clouds are gone, they've been dissipated by confession, a fresh application of the blood of Christ. The smile of God is upon you. The steadfast love of verse 10. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. And, O righteous, shout for joy, all you upright in the Lord. Verse 10, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the kind of thing you experience when the sin has been confessed. Verses 3 and 4, that's what David was like when he didn't confess. 10 and 11, that's what David's like. And the Lord's forgiven him. That's how you want to live. And frankly, that's how you want to die. The way you die, knowing sin's forgiven. Some years ago I was in England and I went to a graveyard, as, as one does. And um, I saw a gravesite there, not of a famous man, but a man with an unusual name. His name was John Tickle. What a funny name, eh? John Tickle. But he died in 1898. John Tickle, on the, on the gravestone it says, John Tickle, who died January 17, 1898, age 65 years old. That's my age. Almost, I think. Almost, yeah. But, but then, then it says this. His end was peace. I can die like that. If God takes me this year, You can put that on my tombstone. His end was peace, because I'm forgiven. 
And most of us here, we could put that on your gravestone. His end, her end, was peace. What will we put on your gravestone? If you believe in Christ, we can say of you, his end was peace. Her end was peace. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that indeed the gospel will be applied to those who are not believers so that for them too, their end will be peace because they are forgiven through the blood of Christ. Those of us who are believers, how we thank you that we are those who are cleansed from all unrighteousness because of him. Hear hear our prayers, Lord. Save souls. Receive our praise for Jesus' sake.